0: Great. Thank you very much, Linda. It's a reading and a half, that one, so thank you for that. And thanks to our musicians as well for leading us in praise this evening. It's um, Yeah, it's much appreciated. It's um, a significant thing week by week. Well, we are back in the book of Daniel and Daniel chapter 4, and it's a strange story, isn't it? It's a strange story that we've read. So as we come, as we come and look at this, let's come and pray together and pray that the truths from this passage would be awakened in our hearts to understand them and be changed by them. Lord God, our loving Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for what we have to learn from this passage about who you are, about your character, about your rule and your majesty. And we just pray you would open up our hearts to understand it and to be changed by it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we're continuing then, looking at the book of Daniel. I was just joking with Margaret, actually, because we're actually only going to look at the first seven chapters of Daniel. If you read on the, set, the, the last five or so chapters, the end of Daniel gets very, very strange and very hard to, to understand. So we're only looking at the first few chapters, first seven chapters or so. But there's so much in there to teach us about who God is and how he deals with his people. You might remember, I'm sure you do, that Daniel and his friends have been taken captive from Jerusalem, They've been taken as exiles into Babylon and there they are serving Nebuchadnezzar, in, the king of Babylon, in his royal court. And two weeks ago, in chapter 2, we were reminded of that story where Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He wants to make sure that no one's going to try and hoodwink him as to the meaning, so he doesn't tell his advisors as to what it is, the dream was, what the dream was. And it's the Lord, through Daniel, who reveals the dream, and the meaning. So chapter 2, we had the Lord who reveals. Last week, we had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the God who rescues, rescues, his, rescues those three faithful men from the burning, from the fiery furnace. And today, in chapter 4, there's another dream. But today, the focus of this dream is all about the Lord who rules. We've had the one, the, the God who reveals, the God who rescues, and this evening, the God who rules. And as might have been apparent, as you read this chapter, it's basically a decree from King Nebuchadnezzar telling all of his subjects about what God has done for him. In some ways, it's a little bit like a testimony, isn't it? Just look down with me at the beginning. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all the peoples, nations, languages that dwell in all the earth... Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show you the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. And this verse here actually is the key to this whole chapter. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. This is basically the big idea of the whole chapter that God's dominion rules over everything. Which I guess in one level is not a big surprise to us, but it might have been quite a shock to Daniel. Put yourself into Daniel's position. His home city, the city of Jerusalem, the city that basically is where God's presence is, in the temple, the city lies in absolute ruins. It's been destroyed by the Babylonians. The temple is, is is a pile of rubble. He's in exile, he's serving in the Babylonian court. And that question about is God really ruling, is such a real one for him. Because the city that he loved, Jerusalem, is in ruins. And for me, this is why the book of Daniel is so helpful for us as Christians today, two and a half or whatever it is, thousand years later. Because, yes, we too are exiles. The New Testament describes Christians as exiles. But I think more than that, actually, like Daniel, we too are faced with a challenge. A challenge as to whether we're really going to believe that God is ruler over all the earth. You see, it would have been very easy for Daniel to have privatized his faith, to have made his faith an internal private thing, not a public thing, to conclude that maybe God might rule of Israel, might God, the God of Israel might rule in Israel, but to think that he rules in Babylon, where Nebuchadnezzar is king, to think that he rules over all the kingdoms of the earth, do you know, it seems a little far-fetched, doesn't it? And it can be the same with us. We can separate life into into two spheres. On the one hand, we've got that sphere of life where we believe God is relevant. And we're more so than in church on a Sunday. And then we've got the rest of life. At school, at work, at university, family life, non-Christian friends and family. And, And in that sphere, it feels a little bit like God is not really all that relevant it can be hard there's this gap it's a little bit like traveling on the London Underground that phrase that you hear time and time again mind the gap mind the gap and as Christians we can live with this gap this gap between the world where we believe God is relevant because we come and we worship him and the world in the rest of life It's often called the sacred and the secular divide. That divide between those things where we think God is relevant and those things where we just struggle to believe that he's relevant, that he's in charge, that he's in control. Well, from this passage this evening, we're going to see how the sovereign God really does rule over the proud kings and rulers of the nations. And that that truth, that reality should give us a humble confidence to serve God as a faithful exile, just like Daniel did. And we're going to look at this story. I appreciate it's a long long story, but we're going to look at it in three really simple ways. We're going to basically look at the three main characters. So firstly, at Nebuchadnezzar, a proud king. Secondly, at Daniel, a faithful exile. And then thirdly, at the sovereign God. So first of all, Nebuchadnezzar. A proud king and we start chapter 4 and it feels a little bit familiar doesn't it because chapter 2 started with Nebuchadnezzar having a dream and everyone feeling pretty agitated by that because Nebuchadnezzar was agitated by it and you can look down there you can see verse 5 he's alarmed he's afraid he calls his magicians and his astrologers but they can't help very much and so of course he calls upon Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar's dream is certainly dramatic and also pretty weird, it has to be said. So verse 10, you see that he's, he dreams about this great and glorious tree that dominates the earth. It, it goes from the, from the earth and reaches all the way up to the heavens. And under this tree, all sorts of animals come and they, they get their food from this tree. They get their shade from the tree. They get protection. This tree that brings life and blessing to all the earth. And you can imagine at this point, Nebuchadnezzar's thinking, yeah, I could kind of see myself as that kind of tree. That's the sort of thing that he would like. But the second part of his dream becomes very unsettling. Look down at verse 13. Because there we see that in divine judgment, an angel comes and orders that this great and majestic tree be cut down. All the branches and the leaves are chopped off it. The fruit's scattered. And only the stump remains, bound in iron and bronze. And the terrifying bit for Nebuchadnezzar must be that even before Daniel's giving him any interpretation, (coughs) it's obvious that in verse 15, this tree is actually a person. Look down there. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven, verse 15. But the destruction of this tree who's actually a person, isn't the end because actually verse 16 tells us in a really strange way that this person is basically going to lose their mind. They're going to become like an animal for a period of time, unable to reason, unable to think. It's no wonder this dream left Nebuchadnezzar alarmed and afraid. And what's the reason, though? What's the reason for this great and mighty person being humbled like this? Look down with me, verse 17. The second half there. To the end, or for the purpose that the living may know, that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will, and sets over it the lowliest of men. You see, the issue here is Nebuchadnezzar's pride. Here's a king who is great and powerful. He holds the number one spot in the number one kingdom, in the number one empire of the whole world. An evidence of his pride is kind of scattered throughout this passage. You see it at the beginning, that sense in verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house, prospering in my palace. But you see it even more clearly down in verse 29. Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? Do you see it? My, I, is what he has done, what he has achieved. In many ways, I think Nebuchadnezzar epitomizes the rulers of of the age, doesn't it? proud rulers, through history or today. History is littered with examples of people who've used their power, their might, and their glory for their own ends, for their own purposes. And sadly, you don't have to look too far, do you, for contemporary examples, whether it's Putin and his invasion of Ukraine, whether it's the persecution of Christians and other minorities in places like China, whether it's the denial of women's rights in Afghanistan or political oppression in Zimbabwe, the list can go on and on and on, where proud rulers think that they are the ones in control. Now, we might not experience those same kind of extremes here in the UK, but I think we all know what it's like to feel intimidated by an increasingly secular society around us. My commute to work takes me up to London Bridge. And walking past London Bridge, you're just surrounded by all the symbols of power and might. You've got the shard and you've got the walkie-talkie building and the gherkin and all these other symbols of power and might and affluence. And on a Monday morning, that feels in stark contrast to a handful of people gathering at church on a Sunday evening. You know, that sense of the proud rulers of the earth and against that backdrop, it's so easy, isn't it, to feel pretty small and pretty intimidated. It can be easy for our Christian confidence and hope to feel pretty frail and pretty unimpressive. So, if that's the proud king, how then should we respond as Christians? Well... We have the example, the example of Daniel. So secondly, Daniel, a faithful exile. Now, of course, it should come as no surprise to us that it is Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar turns to to deal with his troublesome dreams. He's got a track record of interpreting them. And as he hears the dream, you can see in verse 18 that he's both dismayed and alarmed. I think here is probably the ultimate point of speaking truth to power. You begin to get a sense, don't you, that as Daniel understands the dream and hears it and understands it, you begin to think, well, maybe all the other astrologers and magicians and everyone else who heard it, it wasn't so much that they didn't know what the dream meant, it's just that they really didn't have the guts to actually tell Nebuchadnezzar what they thought it meant. Because when you read the dream, it's pretty clear as to what is going on. You see, here is Daniel called upon to speak truth to power. And here he is, God's faithful exile, willing to speak the truth. And so he, he explains in verse 22 that this great and mighty tree is, of course, Nebuchadnezzar. And then he explains the dream's meaning. Look down with me, let me read from verse 24. to whom he will. Imagine conveying that kind of message to a man like Nebuchadnezzar. But he is, he and he does, he does, he speaks that truth. And Daniel concludes then with an appeal to Nebuchadnezzar. A little further down, verse twenty-seven, he says, "Therefore, break off your sins by practicing righteousness, and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed." that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. You see, here is an appeal, an appeal of hope for Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel says to him, look, to the most powerful man in the world, he says, look, you need to govern with righteousness. And that word righteousness, is, in the Old Testament particularly, is often associated with justice. Justice and righteousness go together. He needs to, he needs to show mercy to the oppressed. He's basically calling on Nebuchadnezzar to rule with righteousness and justice, to stop oppression, to stop the arrogance, in order that his rule, his prosperity, might continue. This is Daniel living out what it means to be a faithful exile. I think it's interesting, he uses that word there, prosperity. There's a very famous passage in Jeremiah, chapter 29, you don't need to turn to it, but you can make a note of it. Jeremiah 29, it's a it's very famous passage of Jeremiah writing to the exiles in Babylon, actually writing to Daniel. We know from later in Daniel that Daniel read this letter. And in that letter, Jeremiah says this, he says, you're going to be in exile for 70 years. So settle down, marry, make, have families, start businesses. And then he says these words, he says, seek the prosperity of the city to which you have been carried. In other words, Daniel and the exiles, they're not meant to live in exile resenting it and hating it. They're meant to get involved. They're meant to get stuck in. They're meant to seek the prosperity of the place where they have been put. To bring God honor and glory. To live as faithful exiles there in exile, in Babylon. And that is what Daniel is doing. He's speaking truth to power, seeking the welfare of the city. And the amazing thing is, he doesn't do that as a religious leader. He doesn't do that as a prophet. He does it as a civil servant. We have a few civil servants here this evening, I know. But he does it as a civil... That's for his job. That's basically what he's doing. And, and the way in which Daniel's described, I find fascinating. Did you see what Nebuchadnezzar called him? There in verse 9, Nebuchadnezzar refers to him by his Babylonian name, Belteshazzar, which is basically named after, the, after Nebuchadnezzar's own God. And the title, Daniel's job title, he's the chief of the, mag- the magicians. The chief of the magicians. I find it shocking, surprising that here is Daniel, he's named, he's given a new name after the God of Nebuchadnezzar, and there he is, the chief of the magicians, living as a faithful exile. Do you know, I think the implications of that are actually really exciting, because it's very easy for us to, almost subconsciously, have a sense of a hierarchy of Christian living, that at the top we have the pastors and the missionaries, And then we move down a tier and we have people who work in social care and kind of hospitals and schools and things like that. And then we get to people like accountants or lawyers or people who work in business who basically the only real value that they have in their work is to earn the money that can pay the bills for everyone else in the church. And Daniel would know absolutely nothing of that because here is Daniel living as a faithful exile, living as an exile Honouring God in the way in which he does his work as the chief of magicians. What an encouragement this is to be and to live as a faithful exile. I remember reading a book years ago uh, as a student which was succinctly entitled Chameleon or Tribe? As I explain what it was about, you will understand it. Basically, the the whole premise of the book was that you can either live Christian life as a chameleon, where you basically seek to blend in to the background, completely indistinguishable from the world around. Or you can live life as a tribe, as as a subculture, where you retreat from the world, we just have our own little holy huddle, and we just kind of stay disengaged. And as Christians, we're not called to be chameleons or to live in a tribe. We are meant to be ambassadors, because that is what Daniel was. An ambassador is someone who is in a foreign country, but is speaking and advocating for the country to which they truly belong. And isn't that what Daniel was doing? Isn't that what we should do? We should speak on behalf of the country to which we truly belong, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. So Daniel, a faithful exile. It's a wonderful implication for each of us tomorrow morning, in whatever walk of life we do, whatever we're heading off to do tomorrow morning, that actually, in that setting, in that situation, we can honour God. We can give glory to God. Edith Schaeffer was the wife of Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaefer was a Christian thinker from the... 60s, 70s, 80s, I guess. She once said this, Jesus Christ is Lord means that the risen Christ is Lord of mealtimes and storytelling, of banking and business, of art and culture. There's no area of life about which we could say to him, I'm sorry, you'd better keep out of this. You wouldn't understand. Just stick to religion. Isn't that great? There's no area of life about which we can say to Jesus, look, just stay out of it. No. If he's Lord, he's Lord of it all. So, we have a proud king. We have a faithful exile. The question is, how can we, as Christians in the 21st century, how can we follow Daniel's example to live as faithful exiles into the place where God calls us. Well, the power and the resources to follow that example come from us understanding and believing the third point. We've seen a proud king, a faithful exile, thirdly and finally, a sovereign God. Look down with me, verse 28 to 33. This is the fulfillment of the dream And then he's driven out, as we have already read. The key verse here, verse 32, this is going to continue, it says, until he knows that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. The Most High rules the kingdom of men. That phrase actually appears three times in this passage. It's there, verse 32. It's also there in verse 17, and again in verse 26. That you may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. That repetition is meant to reinforce the point that whatever the proud kings and rulers of this world might think, it's actually the Lord that is sovereign. He sets up rulers, and he brings them low. God is sovereign, and they rule only at his pleasure. And so Nebuchadnezzar is completely humbled. He's brought low, as it says, for seven periods of time. We don't quite know what that means. Maybe it means seven years. It's not entirely clear. But he's humbled up until the point where, in verse 34... He lifts his eyes to heaven. And at that point, his reason is restored to him. He's restored to his rule, to, his, to, his, to, to Babylon. And in response, he praises God. And he praises God with those words of verse 34 and 35. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. You see... The kingdoms of this world may look impressive and powerful. But as Nebuchadnezzar recognizes, the truth is that it's God's kingdom is the one that endures. That actually it is God who sets up rulers, who puts them in their place, and who brings them down. And so as Nebuchadnezzar says in verse 37, those who walk in pride, he is able to humble I wonder what we make of that then. The reality that the sovereign God raises up rulers and brings them down. I wonder what our reaction to that is. I think one response should be of hope. Because when we think about some of those examples around the world that we were thinking of earlier on, we should have hope that in the face of the rulers and authorities who might dismiss God, they can never escape his sovereignty. And so as we live as exiles, we should have hope. We should have hope and comfort that our Heavenly Father truly is the sovereign king of heaven. So it should give us comfort. But I think as well, it also challenges us. Because of course, the pride to which Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar was, was inclined actually is true of every one of us, isn't it? Pride and arrogance isn't simply reserved for great men and women of state. We're just as prone, like Nebuchadnezzar, to look at our achievements and to think that they are things that we have built with our mighty power, for our own honor, for our own glory. There's obviously a form of pride that is a right sense of satisfaction in a job well done. But the pride to which Nebuchadnezzar succumbed and the pride to which we're all vulnerable is that that is a kind of pompous, self-congratulatory pride. And these verses should humble us. It's possible to take pride in our accomplishments, in our Christian service even, in our orthodoxy, or even, ironically, to take pride in humility. And actually, if God raises up and brings low... The rulers of the earth then in the same way we should be humbled to know that actually there's nothing that we have is that is not a gift from him so what is it then that is going to both humble us but also give us a confidence as we live as exiles in the world because that's what we need isn't it a humble confidence we often don't put those two things together do we Sometimes we think that if someone's humble, they're going to be pretty timid and not very confident. Or on the other hand, if we think someone's confident, we rarely associate them with humility. But in the gospel, humility and confidence go together. A humble confidence. So how can we be people that demonstrate this humble confidence as we live as exiles? Well, To do that, we've got to look to the king. And I don't mean King Nebuchadnezzar, but King Jesus. You see, Nebuchadnezzar was a king, a proud king, who reached up to the heavens and whom God brought low. But Jesus, Jesus is the true king, the king who in humility stooped down to the earth, even to death on a cross, And in stooping down, was then raised up and exalted to the highest heaven by God, his Father. What a contrast. Nebuchadnezzar, who reaches to heavens and is humbled. And Jesus, the king of heaven, who stoops down and is then exalted up. Because he is the king that we worship. The king who, in the words of Philippians chapter 2, did not count equality with God something to be grasped. But made himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant, being found in human likeness, he humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. And therefore, God has raised him up and exalted him. You see, the king that we worship as the sovereign God over the affairs of heaven and earth is not a king like King Nebuchadnezzar, it's King Jesus. We worship a king who loved us to the point of dying for us on a cross. And when we realize that, when we realize that actually we are proud people who needed him to rescue us, and yet we are loved people and he was pleased to rescue us, it's that reality that gives us a humble confidence. Humility because we know that we're sinners, and confidence because we know that we're dearly loved. And we take that humble confidence into the world to live as faithful exiles who know and believe and trust in the sovereign God of heaven. So, may we have that humble confidence that comes only from the gospel and may we, like Daniel, live as faithful exiles in the place where he's put us. One final thought. When we think of the sovereignty of God, when we think of God's power and control, we're at an uncertain point in the life of the church, aren't we? We're in search of a senior minister. It can be an unsettling time, and yet, this is still the sovereign God who holds each of us and holds the church in his hands. And so as we think about the sovereignty of God, his power, his grace, his control, for us as a light in the life of the church at the moment, that should too give us great confidence and great certainty that he will work his purposes out. He's our sovereign, gracious king, and he can be trusted and relied upon. Let's pray together.